We'll open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians, no, to Acts chapter 16, where we will read about some Philippians. Acts chapter 16. We saw last time how Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man asking for help. They sailed across from Troas to, well, to the port of Philippi, and they got, yeah, to Neapolis, and there they came, from there they came to Philippi. So we'll read about that, starting in verse 13. What happened to Paul and his team in Philippi? And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she constrained us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison, and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent word to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to him, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. 
And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see the growth and progress of your kingdom in these three incidents at Philippi. Father, we thank you that your word comes and helps women and slaves and Gentile jailers. We thank you that the entire Roman state has to respect your word and allow its free proclamation. We pray, Father, that you would help us now to listen to the proclamation of that word. Bring your kingdom among us. Help us, Father, to see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ and to submit to his rule today. Help me to speak boldly. Give us all freedom from distraction. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Philippi is a beautiful place. I was showing a couple of pictures to the Sunday school class. It is a magnificent spot there on the coast of Greece. But what happened there was more beautiful than the scenery and the setting of the city. Luke tells us three stories from Philippi. We have the place of prayer, where Lydia is converted. We have the python spirit, where this girl is delivered from being demon-possessed. And then we have the major portion of the story, the Roman colony. As Paul and Cyrus, Cyrus, Paul and Silas, interact with the governing authorities of Philippi. And in all of these, we see the kingdom spread kingdom make progress. As Lydia is converted, the slave girl is delivered from the power of the demon, and the whole city of Philippi is made a place where it has been publicly acknowledged that the gospel may be proclaimed. Those who preach the gospel are publicly let out with an apology and told, you didn't do anything wrong. So we'll see that. We'll see that Christ's rule rescues women, rescues slaves, It rescues Gentiles. It makes the people it rescues hospitable, something Luke focuses on. And it overrules praetors, lictors, and the whole machinery of the Roman state. But it does that through suffering. First of all, the kingdom and the place of prayer. On the Sabbath day, we went out to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. It's not clear whether this is actually a synagogue or whether there is just a, a wide spot on the riverbank. The term place of prayer could refer to a building, a full-blown synagogue institution, or it could just refer to an open spot of ground where people sometimes gathered for outdoor prayer meetings. Uh, it's tempting to think because Luke, if there's a synagogue, usually says there was a synagogue and Paul went there and that there's no synagogue in Philippi. All he can find is this place of prayer, which is frequented by women because there are no Jewish men to start a synagogue. That could be, but that is not necessarily the case. 
the terminology leaves it open. But anyway, in, in his usual fashion, in his following his typical habit, Paul goes to this place of prayer and starts speaking about Jesus. And the first person, the first convert, seemingly, is Lydia from the city of Thyatira, somewhere in Asia Minor, who has traveled to Macedonia to perform business, but it sounds like she's there at least regularly enough to own a house in Philippi. She's converted. And when she's converted, she is hospitable to the team. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she wouldn't take no for an answer, Luke records. She constrained us. Notice that Luke joined them on the voyage from Troas to Macedonia. We have verse 8, passing by Mesia, they came down to Troas. Luke speaking in the third person about Paul and Silas and the team. And then verse 10, after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia. Luke is in Troas. Luke joins the team and he starts recording what happened to them as he travels along with them. They cross over to Philippi, meet Lydia. Lydia is converted very quickly as a God-fearing Gentile. She and her household are baptized. Notice that this is the pattern throughout the New Testament. Not that the individual is baptized and then, well, we'll wait and see if anyone else in the household believes and when they believe, we'll baptize them. Much more the Old Testament pattern of if the head of the house believes... The whole household is brought under the covenant sign. And so over and over, Lydia and her household are baptized. The Philippian jailer and his household are baptized just as when Abraham believes he's circumcised and his whole household is circumcised. Luke is clearly picking up on something that is present in the book of Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament and showing us this still happens. This is still the normative pattern. The other thing Luke wants us to see is that working women are part of the church and have been from the beginning. Right? Despite some of the things that he says in his letters, Paul doesn't say to Lydia, honey, you need to quit that job. You need to stop selling purple. You need to find a man. No Christian woman should be selling purple in Philippi. He doesn't tell her that. He apparently is pleased to stay with her, to partake of the benefits of the money she earns from her expensive uh, deals in purple. Purple is a very special color in those days, hard to get, and only be gotten from the shells of certain sea creatures that were very hard to catch, and so on. That's Lydia's trade. In our day of cheap, plentiful dyes, we think that bright colors are easy to acquire. That was not the case in those days. So Lydia is a working woman and is welcomed into the church as such. And when she is a believer, she says, come stay with me. So much to learn here. If you're a believer, be hospitable. Open your home. If you're a believer, you don't have to change your occupation, even if you are a working woman. God doesn't tell you that working women are wrong part of the church. Well, Luke moves on pretty quickly to the next thing that happened in Philippi, a second encounter where the kingdom of God is manifest. And here it is the kingdom versus the python spirit. A certain slave girl possessed with what the New King James calls a spirit of divination, but Luke calls it 
the spirit of Python, as in the giant snake. Where does this come from? Well, Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, allegedly killed a big snake, a python. Apollo was thought to be the one who inspired the, the nonsense utterances of the oracle at Delphi. And Apollo was thought to be the one who inspired this slave girl. And he became known as the python god, the python spirit, because of his formidable skill in killing that python at some point in his career. So the spirit of python, or rightly paraphrased by English versions, the spirit of divination, a spirit that knows things that human beings wouldn't have access to, possesses this slave girl. And clearly the spirit is right, because it says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Well, couldn't have put it better myself. That's exactly what Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are in Philippi to do. But as they go around town, this girl starts following them and repeating that. Now, this business of endorsement is a tricky business. If somebody is just reporting on who you are, that isn't necessarily an endorsement. But when they keep reporting on who you are, and if they make a big deal out of it, eventually, in your mind, in the minds of the crowd, you are associated with your major endorser. And there comes a point where Paul is greatly annoyed and he says, you know what? I don't need demons to follow me around town endorsing me. I just don't need that in my life. It's not that the demon is telling a lie. But in the minds of the people of Philippi, Paul and the team are now associated with fortune-telling, demon possession, and the sickest kind of capitalism where these guys profit from their, their ward, their slave, being demon-possessed. Paul says, I don't want the gospel associated with those things. In other words, right, contrary to the postmodern mantra, not all publicity is good publicity. And so Paul shuts down this particular kind of publicity. He exorcises the demon and he exorcises the prophets. Luke uses the same verb back to back at the end of verse 18. The demon went out and then verse 19, their prophet went out. So the prophets are exorcised when the demon is exorcised and that sets off a riot. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first we have to say, what happened to the slave girl? Where did she go? Now, since her story is told between the conversion of Lydia and the conversion of the jailer, we can guess that Paul and Luke intends for us to understand that she too is converted and joins the Philippian church. But she passes out of the narrative immediately, just like the other sorcerers, Bar-Jesus, Simon Magus, the other ones that Paul and Peter have confronted and shut down, same thing happens here. And honestly, it's much easier to be outraged over the plight of this girl than to actually push back against the commodification and trafficking of women, often demon-inspired, that takes place around us today. 
Luke is telling us that when the kingdom of God comes, we will have a world where no one can make money by exploiting women because there's no market for the exploitation of women. He's also telling us how to get there. Paul doesn't go to the preters, the magistrates, and say, I want you to ban fortune-telling for money in this city. Paul doesn't pursue a political solution. Paul vanquishes one supernatural power by a superior supernatural power. Jesus drives out the demon. And that's what Paul does. Paul says, Christ reigns over you, demon. Get out of here. And the demon has no choice but to get out. So there's a place for the conversion of magistrates and the banning of slaveholding, the banning of pornography, the banning of trafficking and commoditizing human life and beauty. That's not the place we start. The place we start is the proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus rules. That means you need to stop profiting from your slaves. You need to stop paying other people to tell your fortune. And so on. That's what Paul proclaimed. So what happens to the girl? We don't know. She's a prop in the story of Christ's kingdom, like all of us. Scripture doesn't provide a complete biography of anybody. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not even Jesus. Nor of this Philippian slave girl. Well, the kingdom conquers the python spirit. But what happens next? Well, there's a riot. The slave owners, the syndicate that owns this girl and is making money off her special talent of being demon-possessed, is not happy that Paul has driven out, exorcised their prophets. There's going to follow then a showdown between Jesus and two major gods of Rome. Well, the owners of the slave girl seize Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace to the authorities. And what is the complaint? The actual tort, the actual harm that they suffered was that one supernatural power evicted their supernatural power. Now that claim, that claim doesn't go anywhere in a human court. There's no way that the court can give an injunction and say, the supernatural power needs to come back. Paul, you violated these guys' property rights. Human courts understand that human governments don't grant property rights in the supernatural. There is no way for the court to force the demon to come back and make money again. Not going to happen. And of course, the syndicate understands that that kind of complaint would be laughed out of court. And so they modify the complaint into a different God, a God that everyone understands, the God of mammon. Now, that's not, of course, the complaint that they present either. They don't come and say, we're mad at Paul and Silas because they cost us money. What would the court say? There's nothing illegal about that. If their God, if the God of the Jews drove out your demon, take it up with the God of the Jews. There is nothing that this court can rule on in this case. 
But the syndicate, the slave owners, are a lot more subtle than that, and they say, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So what God do they posit? Well, they posit this cultural idea of Romanitas. We're Romans, they're Jews. And their Judaism is upsetting our Romanness, and their Judaism needs to be excluded from our Roman city. Now Luke just mentions it in verse 12. Philippi, the foremost part of that city of Macedonia, a colony. What does he mean by that? Well, Philippi is a Macedonian city. That is, it's in Greece or in Macedonia. But culturally, it is a colony of Rome. It is privileged to be a mini-model of the city of Rome on non-Roman soil. It's a little outpost of the mother city, the metropolis. And people in Philippi are very proud of their status as Romans. So the ancient city of Rome, the Republic, is governed by two consuls who are at the top of the executive branch, and the consuls work with the Senate and so on. So it is in Philippi. Philippi is governed not by two consuls, but by two praetors who serve the same function as the consuls did in Republican Rome. So the Philippians think of themselves as Roman, just like colonists in early America thought of themselves as British. If you ask somebody in Plymouth, Massachusetts in the year 1655, are you an Englishman or an American? What would he say? I'm an Englishman. He'd say, well, you don't live in England. You live in America. But he would say, no, I live in New England. I live in a colony of England that is just like England, except it's not in England. It's somewhere else. So is Philippi, a colony of Rome, just like Rome. And the miffed slaveholders know that they won't get any traction by complaining that their demon is gone, but they will get traction by complaining these Jews upset Romanness. They are teaching strange non-Roman customs. So again, in our own situation, we can think of the notorious House Committee on Un-American Activities from the 1950s. This is that same thing that these guys posit. We have here some un-Roman activities. And it's the duty of the state to limit and to drive out these un-Roman activities. So what happens? Well, the, the mob likes that complaint. They immediately agree, yes, this is non-Roman, and the people who are practicing it deserve to be beaten heavily, thrown into jail, kicked out of town. The multitude rose up together against them. And then it's not clear what happened. The magistrates, the praetors, tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Why do the praetors do this? There are two options here. Perhaps they are going along with the mob and they're saying, yes, get them. Here's your guys, the naked ones. Rip. Or they might be trying to control the mob, saying, don't kill them. Just give them a good beating. 
And the only official penalty we'll give them is to strip them naked and let the mob have them for 15 or 20 minutes, and then we'll put them in jail and, you know, teach them a lesson and send them on their way. So could be either one. Regardless, as we'll see, Paul considers it, and we consider it, a major miscarriage of justice. If the preachers are standing up against the mob, they aren't doing so fully. They aren't saying, no, you can't beat these people up. No, their only crime is that their God evicted your demon. That's not a crime. Go away. Instead, the magistrates participate in the mob action to some extent and let Paul and Silas get beat up. Why do the preachers do this? Well, ultimately, they serve the false god of respectability. The slave owners serve mammon, and that causes them to posit an idea of Romanitas that excludes apostles. The preachers serve respectability, and that causes them to go along with the idea of Romanitas that excludes apostles. And to say, oh yeah, we don't want un-Roman customs to get a foothold here. We're Romans. We got to be respectable. And so they do the very un-Roman thing of beating uncondemned prisoners who have not been tried or found guilty of any crime. All in the name of preserving Roman values. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Serve respectability, persecute apostles. So Paul and Silas are beaten heavily, many stripes laid on them. You can imagine how if rods are being distributed to an angry crowd and you're standing there naked and the magistrates are urging the crowd, yeah, beat them up. You wouldn't feel so good after that. They were black and blue and probably bloodied. But the jailer is told to keep them with extra security lest they manage to, you know, escape in their beaten up condition. So he brings them into the jail, the inner prison, ties them to a piece of wood or puts them in stocks. And amazingly, what do they do? What does the kingdom of God do? What do servants of God do in this situation? They sing. At midnight, they're singing hymns, and we all want to be Paul and Silas, and we should be like Paul and Silas, singing in the midst of our suffering. Silas isn't sitting there saying, you know, Paul, why couldn't you have had a vision that told us to go to a different part of Macedonia? Why did we pick Philippi again? They're not there throwing recriminations at each other. They are singing. And this is why we need to learn to sing so that we can enjoy it. This is why we need to learn our hymns, so that when we're in this situation, or a lesser version of it, we have hymns and psalms in our heads ready to go. Paul and Silas wanted to express their joy. They weren't glad that they had been beaten up, but they were glad that Jesus still reigned even when they were unfairly treated in the name of Romanitas, beaten up and thrown into prison. That's what the kingdom does. It makes its servants, its citizens, joyful. So when those who pride themselves on being Romans violate Roman laws, 
Paul and Silas sing. And those who pride themselves in being Americans violate American laws. We should continue to sing. This is why the church is not a political organization. We don't gather here and say, well, the situation is so urgent with the mess in Ukraine, the mess in Washington, the mess here, the mess there, that we need to suspend the worship of God today and focus on political action to fix the mess. Paul and Silas show us the better way. No, what's more urgent than the mess here, there, and everywhere is the worship of God. We need to continue praying and singing hymns to God no matter what horrible injustice is being perpetrated. So their joy is rewarded. In a sense, God sends the earthquake, the prison springs open, the jailer is ready to commit suicide. He doesn't have that joy. Far from it. He sees himself as having failed in his duty to guard the prisoners. And he's ready to fall on his sword. Paul somehow knows that he's going to do that. Right? It's so dark that he has to call for a light, but Paul can maybe see him or hear him draw his sword, something like that, and says, don't kill yourself. No one has escaped. You didn't fail in your duty, jailer. And he's so moved that he asks how to be saved. They tell him, they speak the word of the Lord to him. He's saved, and how does he show it? He takes them and washes their stripes, and he brings them into his house. Now, how many detention officers do you know who are eager to take people who are in prison 20 minutes ago, bring them over for dinner at 1 o'clock in the morning? The Word of God makes people hospitable. The Word of God makes people sing. The joy of saints converts the Philippian jailer. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And those of you who know the book of Philippians know that what is it about? It's about joy. Paul says that all the time. Now, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Because Philippi was a place of joy to him and to this jailer and presumably to the slave girl who was freed from the python spirit. So how does it wind up? Well, the magistrates, the praetors sent the lictors, translated as officers in most English versions, but the lictors, remember, are the original fascists. They carry that bundle of rods, the fasces, that symbolizes their position as officers of the Roman state. They are the messenger boys of the consul or the praetor, and they come to the prison boss and say, you can let them out now. They've learned their lesson. And then Paul drops his bombshell. Have they beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans? And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Suddenly, Paul appeals to the law. You have no right to beat me. You have no right to imprison me without charges, conviction, and trial, or trial and conviction. And you definitely have no right to just release me secretly and kick me out of town. The obvious question is, Paul, why didn't you say so yesterday? At that moment when the preters started ripping your clothes, why didn't you say, wait a second, I am a Roman. 
Be careful how you touch me. The only plausible answer is that Paul submitted to the beating in the prison that he knew was coming because it was going to be more advantageous for the gospel if he revealed his citizenship the following day. If the first day he had said, I'm a Roman, then it would have been clear, well, he's a Roman, so we have to observe the legal formalities, but it's still in doubt whether what he was doing was right or wrong. Was seven within the confines of Romanitas or not? When he waits till after he's been beaten up and he has to, the preachers have to come and make a public apology, then it's clear to the whole city what Paul and Silas were doing was not wrong. It is perfectly within Romanitas. So, uh, verse 39, they came and pleaded with them, says the New King James. Essentially, the magistrates of the city, the preachers, have to go and make it up to them. Well, how did they make it up to them? Well, I'm sure Paul played hardball and said, you're going to make it clear that we did nothing wrong. You're going to eat some crow and tell everybody, we beat up two guys who didn't violate any city ordinances and who didn't do anything un-Roman. That's what you're going to say. That's how they pleaded with them. They still, the magistrates still said, would you mind leaving? It's a little awkward for you to stay around. Lydia is so hospitable that she's now hosting the church in her house. The gospel makes you hospitable. And Paul and Silas go ahead and leave after encouraging the brethren. But first, what do we see? The kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of Rome and wins. When Paul leaves Philippi, it's been publicly stated that it is okay to preach the gospel in Philippi. There is nothing un-Roman about the Christian proclamation. Paul got there through suffering. But he got there. He won that concession, and he figured, presumably, that at the price of a beating and a night in jail, it was well worth the price. He left the Roman authorities looking bad for their attempt to squash the gospel. He controlled the narrative. So the reign of Christ converts women, slaves, and jailers. It demands the respect of preachers and lictors and the whole Roman state. That's what Luke tells us. And he tells us if you come under the reign of Christ, be hospitable and get your household baptized. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Philippians who are converted to the cause of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that your gospel spread abroad in Philippi, that it rescued people from Satan's kingdom and Satan's power. We thank you that Paul left with the city free for the gospel to be proclaimed there. We ask that you would help us not to be afraid of advancing your kingdom through suffering. We pray that for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine as well. Lord, give us the guts to sing praise to you at the darkest time. Give us the ability 
to learn to sing and to love to sing at all times because we are joyful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us hospitable like Lydia and the Philippian jailer too because you have been hospitable to us and invited us into your home to dwell there forever and ever. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.